Gracious God, as we approach your life-giving word, quiet our hearts and minds, give rest to our anxiety and any sense of inferiority or unworthiness. Silence in us the unrelenting demands of daily living. In this moment, help us to hear you and only you. Amen. From Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to the lawyer, what is written in the law? What do you read there? The lawyer answered, you shall love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to the lawyer, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw the, the beaten man, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him and passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw the beaten man, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine over them. Then the Samaritan put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, Jesus said to the lawyer, do you think was a neighbor? to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. The lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. This is one of those stories that we know by heart. One of the stories that we've heard so many times, we almost don't hear it anymore. It's a story worth knowing, though, that of the Good Samaritan. To be fair, the phrase Good Samaritan never appears in Scripture. If your Bible includes that as a heading, the editors added that in on their own. Maybe to help you find it, maybe to offer a little bit of summary, since the Bible is long. We have it, though, so we might as well use it. And the Samaritan is good. And if the Samaritan in the story is good, then the other two that he is compared to, the priest and the Levite, will they by default then become bad? 
And while we're talking about bad guys, don't forget about the other bad guy, the lawyer who starts this whole thing in the first place, asking Jesus how to inherit eternal life. Because obviously he's testing Jesus, right? And testing Jesus, who is good, well, that's bad. So there you have it. Jesus and the Samaritan are good. Be like Jesus and the Samaritan. And the lawyer, the priest, and the Levite, well, they are bad. Don't be like the lawyer, the priest, or the Levite. On a holiday weekend especially, it is tempting to leave you with that 250-word sermon and send you on your way to barbecue and watermelon, pool parties and fireworks as far as the eye can see. The only problem is that we're finishing up a sermon series on justice today, and an overly simplistic interpretation of this story is an injustice to everyone involved. What if we did away with assuming that anyone is defined entirely as good or bad? What if we assumed that everyone in this story is just like us, which is to say, a bit of a mixed bag? Because the truth is, none of us deserve to be defined by our very best moment but neither do we deserve to be defined by our worst either. So if we do away with these categorical assumptions, what's left for this story to teach us? Because first there is that lawyer, and maybe he is testing Jesus, but he calls Jesus teacher, which is a sign of respect. So maybe he's actually just incredibly earnest, so eager to do what is right that he's willing to rethink and reconsider what Jesus asks of us. Maybe he's actually quicker than the rest of us to realize that faith is a moving target, not a one-and-done accomplishment. And then there's the priest and the Levite, the first two who encounter the man wounded on the road. It's easy to look down on them and judge them for callously continuing on their way, especially because they are the professionally religious ones in the story. But it's not outside the realm of possibility that they are both rushing to be with others equally in need. Or maybe they were very aware that not only had this man been attacked on this road, but many others before him. Maybe they feared for their safety. Now, none of this is an excuse, at least not a particularly good one. But it does suggest that their decisions to keep going might not be as straightforward as we often assume. It's possible that they had to make a hard judgment call. And it's possible that if it were any other day, they would have done differently. So is it possible to give them the benefit of the doubt, just like people have given me when I've made a decision that I have later regretted. 
And finally, there is that good Samaritan. We're so conditioned to calling him that that it's easy to forget. The first folks who heard this story, they understood Samaritans to be anything but good. Samaritans were the other. They worshipped the same God as the priests and the Levites, but they rejected two-thirds of the Hebrew Bible as false teaching. They thought the temple in Jerusalem was a disgrace, so they had a temple of their own on Mount Gerizim, and they had their own separate priesthood. Now, everyone in Jerusalem, they thought that this was the disgrace. Samaritans and Jews were each heretics in the other's eyes, even if that one particular Samaritan did seem to know something of compassion and mercy. All of this is why good and bad just don't work. The world has actually never been that easily divided, not even in Jesus' day. And if we buy into the falsehood that it can be, we are only deceiving ourselves. I mentioned earlier that we are finishing up a series on justice today. For five weeks, we have considered some of the stories that justice needs to tell. And we've thought together about what justice looks like and where it shows up and how it shows up and who it serves, and why people of faith are called to pursue it. Now, just because this series concludes today doesn't mean we'll stop talking about justice, because justice is woven into our sacred text, and into our ancient tradition, and into our everyday living. But since it is the last day of this series, I want to offer an observation that comes from the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan all together. The pursuit of justice is a noble and essential and faithful endeavor, one that by definition demands a great deal of us. But the realization of justice does not depend upon us Ultimately, the full realization of justice is in God's hands. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a declaration, not a question. The only question is if we are going to be part of it or not. Look at the scripture again. A man is attacked and left by the side of the road, wounded and in pain. Now I am confident that it is God's will in that moment for that man to be noticed and cared for, for his body and spirit to be healed again. So along comes a priest and then comes a Levite, both of whom handle holy things and perform sacred rituals and offer sacrifices on a regular basis. They are well aware of what their religious teachings would have them do. But for whatever reason, they don't stop. 
In this story, God's will is left by the side of the road by those who are supposedly the most in tune to it. But that's not where it stays because a Samaritan comes along and tends to the man and in so doing, tends to God's will. God's will is realized even without those who claim to be the most invested in it. To put it as bluntly as possible, the religious folks in this story, the faithful folks, the ones who show up to worship every week, this time, they don't get the job done. And while that might break God's heart, it does not stop God's justice. God is going to do what God is going to do in this world, whether we are part of it or not. Justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. There is no question about that. Again, the only question is which side of the dam we're going to find ourselves on. Will we do everything in our power to help the water break through faster? Or will we be on the other side holding up the barrier, holding back the water, as long as possible. The Constitution of the United States was written and signed in 1787. 200 years later in 1987, the country celebrated the Constitution's bicentennial. Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, who 20 years prior to that in 1967 became the first African American to sit on our highest court, he offered a cautionary word at the festivities. He said, the focus of this celebration invites a belief that the vision of the founding fathers yielded the more perfect union it is said we now enjoy. But Justice Marshall disagreed with that assessment. He said the government the framers devised was defective from the start. It required several amendments and a civil war and momentous social transformation so that it could better realize the promise of a more just society. So credit for the Constitution in its present meaning, Marshall concluded, belonged not just to the framers, but to everyone who refused to acquiesce in outdated notions of liberty, justice, and equality, and who strived to better them. He believed in America, he said, but only because he believed that America was still becoming that America was a work in progress, not a finished product. We cannot be defined by some yesterday, he said. If America is to be America, we must be defined by a tomorrow we have yet to see. It was in 1857 that Roger Taney was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and he penned the Dred Scott decision. 
Mr. Scott was a slave who had traveled in and lived in free states and territories, and he appealed to the court that he should be a free man. Taney, writing for the court, stated that the Constitution did not allow for Scott's freedom because as a slave, he was property, not a human. 27 years after that, the court again heard cases addressing the civil rights of former slaves. In 1883, the court revoked the Civil Rights Act of 1875, asserting that no person descending from slaves could ever be a citizen. Justice John Harlan found himself opposing the rest of the court, the lone dissenter. But when it came time for him to write his dissent, he struggled to find the words. Months passed and he found himself in what he called a quagmire of logic, precedent, and law. One Sunday morning while he was at church, his wife, Malvina, she went to the court and she retrieved an inkwell and she placed it and his writing pad on his desk. And when he returned from church, she told him there was an inkwell in his office that needed redeeming. She said it needed to write the words of freedom rather than the words of oppression. And so Justice John Harlan sat down that Sunday afternoon and he wrote his dissent using the very same inkwell that Justice Taney used 30 years before that to enslave Dred Scott. Now Justice Harlan did not prevail that day, but he did pound against the dam and he was part of what eventually became a sea change. In part, because John Harlan picked up his pen, Thurgood Marshall donned his robe and reminded us that we cannot be defined by yesterday. We can only be defined by tomorrow. We can only be defined by what we will choose to fight for and who we will choose to be. That is a question not just for our country, but for our church as well. Because God's justice demands a lot of us and it even desires a great deal for us, but ultimately it does not depend upon us. And that is good news. It is incredibly good news. But those who have ears to hear know that it is also a word of instruction, a word of challenge and charge. God's hope and prayer and intent for all of us as ones who are made in the image of God is that we would reflect God's love and compassion, that we would enact God's justice and mercy, that we would bear witness to God's grace and peace. God's hope and prayer and intent for all of us is not that we would get lost in the question, who is my neighbor? Because that is a good question, but it is not the most important question. Jesus himself turns it on its side in this story 
telling us that the most important question, the most faithful question, is whose neighbor am I willing to be? Who out there in the world is in need of mercy? And what are we doing about it? Who will we choose to be? The answer to those questions, that is what will shape the story that justice tells about us. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.